Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guests today are Michelle Newhart and William Dolphin, and they are the authors of The Medicalization of Marijuana, uh, subtitled Legitimacy, Stigma, and the Patient Experience. And so we're going to have two guests on today because we have two authors of the book, and we're going to dig into a little bit of the history of the book, why it was written, and their involvement in the marijuana cannabis field. And then we're going to talk a little bit about their insights, what they've learned about the market and business, and we're going to talk a little bit about what uh, the current state of the industry and, and where it might go. So with that, Michelle, William, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. So Michelle, why don't we start with you? Because my understanding is is you were the original uh, kind of uh, force behind starting the book and, and doing a lot of the research. So I guess... Why write the book? Like, what was the focus here? Why did you want to write this book? I know you've been involved in the cannabis space for a long time in terms of you know publishing and, and researching. Tell us about this one and what was really driving it. Yeah, well, this book grew out of my work for my dissertation. Mm-hmm. So I have spent my adult life going back and forth between doing sociology in the education space and uh, working in publishing. Mm-hmm. And um, 
when I um, answered an ad in the right around the turn to 2000 in the newspaper mm-hmm. and ended up uh, working for Ed Rosenthal's publishing company yeah. for a number of years. And I left that to go uh, pursue my PhD. And I actually thought at the time that I was done doing things about cannabis for a while. <laughs> then but, your, so your PhD um, was in sociology. It was in sociology. That's Got correct. Got it. And I went, of all places, to Colorado to do my PhD. And <laughs> I got there, not, not a good place to go uh, if you're trying to avoid cannabis right now. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, California kind of been the epicenter before that. And yeah. then uh, everything exploded in Colorado when I was there. It follows you around. <laughs> Yeah. And um, I really, as I was figuring out what I wanted to do, you know, I'm passing all these green crosses and I'm just, I kind of had a moment where I thought, well, do I want to do this or not? And um, it kind of ties into the book. We I talk about this a little bit in the yeah. preface of the book. But at the time, you know, I wanted to use all this uh, pre-existing knowledge that I had built up around understanding what was going on with this and talk about it in a sociological way. Yeah. But I also worried at the time, you know, things have been shifting over a long period of time. But I just thought, man, if I do another thing about cannabis after having worked on cannabis books in the publishing industry, you know, I, I don't know if I'll ever get a job out of my PhD. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a known career killer, you know? Yeah. And uh, especially if if it's multiple things that I've, that I've done. Yeah. And in the end, that very thing ended up being important to why I did the project, that stigma around cannabis has a long reach and even affects people, you know, who want to do research about it. Mm -hmm. And so this ended up being really meaningful project to me. And also the point at which I quit apologizing for doing work that was about (laughs) cannabis. Yeah. So it was evidence-based. It was an interview study, mm-hmm. and it was a great thing to work on for my dissertation because it had meaning beyond just earning the dissertation. You know, the stories of patients are powerful, and I wanted to get it right. Yeah. So well, and I think so important to get real research on this. So when Michelle was considering this, she called me from Colorado and said, "What do you think about this idea?" And I was like, you know what, this is this is great. This is so important because at that point, I had been working with Americans for Safe Access, the patient advocacy group, for mm-hmm. a decade. And so I'd heard all kinds of anecdotal stories from individuals, you know, just heartbreaking and inspiring stories both. But I knew that there was, you know, always this sort of dismissal of, well, that's one person's story. And so having some kind of systematic look at what it meant to be a patient participating in a state-regulated program was just really important for how we talk about this uh, with policymakers and and others. Yeah. So who is your audience for the book? Are you, are you primarily focused on people that are already in the industry? Were you looking at, you know, people that were users of cannabis, people that were thinking about coming users of cannabis? Like, how, how did you define your kind of target in terms of readers? Well, initially, the goal was to write something that was academically rigorous, so it could be mm-hmm. used to teach college courses and would be appropriate to that audience. Got it. But I also wanted it to be accessible enough that um, advocates or policymakers or other people interested, um, medical professionals, 
people who wanted to know more about this issue, this could be a point of entry to understand the, you know, the behavioral side of what's going on around this issue. And we see there's more research and important research that's going on that's clinical about, you know, what we can do with cannabis. But it's important to also see how people behave around it and especially, you know, how they use it as a medicine. So I really wanted to Right about that part. And we focused on people who were at midlife or older. So everybody, all the patients in the book are 30 and older. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was important too, because historically, when we talk about cannabis, we don't necessarily, there wasn't an age gradation about how it was discussed, but really a lot of what the literature talked about was adolescent cannabis use yeah. and the outcomes from that. Yeah. But the biggest growing group of medical users are people in their 40s and older. Yeah. You know, so I, I really want to focus on the group that was this growing population that was um, just entering the space to use medical cannabis and see. And I, I really felt like it was important to highlight age and how we've discussed age. And in some ways, that led to this overall idea that the book presents about that uh, we we call it the single story. That cannabis had a single story for mm. most of the 20th century, and the story was enforced by authority and oh. it basically said cannabis is for is one thing first of all yep. it has one use for intoxication yep. every use is the same no matter how much or how little you use yep. and um you know basically making every user kind of fit a stereotype yeah and so with medical cannabis it really kind of drives a wedge in this idea And uh, I mean, we know there's been contention all along as we've had this story that goes along with prohibition about use. But what medical does is it says, well, no, there are other levels of use, other age groups. Age makes a difference. Your purpose for using it makes a difference. And we start seeing this disintegration of the single story into, um, you know, a multi-form use where we we acknowledge that there are differences in how people use it. Yeah, it's it's really kind of a deconstruction of that, you know, of, of that. Uh, history or that that single story. I mean, I'm curious from a from a research point of view. I mean, I you know on the on the clinical side, you know, obviously we've had this dearth of research just because of the legal situation. I guess how much did the lack of other clinical scientific research that the lack of that on the clinical side did that impact either you know your process or your thinking or your ability to put together the behavioral research? Well, you know, on on some level, of course, it does. I mean, we see these limitations across the board, but the thing that we do have a lot of information about is how people use medicines. You know, so medical sociology has looked at this in depth, and and so there's a literature about other substances and the behaviors around that. And one of the things that's very interesting and that we do in the book is to consider, well, how does medical cannabis use differ from or resemble what folks do with other medicines? And the answer is, you know, it looks really similar. People largely adopt similar strategies for using cannabis medically Mm -hmm. as they use with pharmaceuticals. The idea that we use is one established by other uh, writers, which is a a mini-max strategy, that patients are interested in minimizing the amount of medication and the symptoms that they're experiencing while maximizing their ability to function. Mm-hmm. And so they're undergoing this sort of balancing act at all times of trying to make sure that they can, you know, fulfill their roles in life. That's what people are concerned with. And 
that's obviously quite different from the purpose of, uh, you know, if we will, if you will, a recreational user, yeah. right? You're not trying to just get high. You're trying to, you're trying to be good. You're trying to be able to function yeah. as effectively as possible. Yeah, no, there's, there's definitely a, a target, a, a purpose that you're, you're driving towards in, in, in the use that is, you know, sort of measurable in that sense, or at least uh, quantifiable in terms of how does it alleviate the symptoms that you're trying to address. Talk to me a little bit about the research and the writing process. What roles did you each play? And, and how did you collaborate? How did you kind of work together to, to create this book? Sure. Well, and the other thing I would say about what you were just saying to just put a point on it yeah. is um, social science often studies things where there may be uncertainty or controversy around that thing. And you, your job is not to prove that it's it has efficacy or that it's clinically relevant or not. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of times you just sort of bracket that question because what you're interested in is how people are using it or talking about it. So, you know, regardless of what clinical science finds, we're interested in the story of people and how they're interacting uh-huh. and what they know or don't know about this thing, how they're, you know, using it. So, um, yeah, I'll that, just that jump makes, in on, makes for on good that. social science. Yeah, I want to just yeah, quickly jump in on that because, you know, one of the things we found is that the the patients uh, who participated in the study, there were 40 uh, in-depth interviews, and they all knew a lot more than the general public about cannabis and its therapeutic uses, but they all had something significantly wrong about it. And that kind of goes to this problem we have about who counts as an expert and who do I trust yeah. for information? Obviously, we can't go to the FDA for good information <laughs> about this, right? Yeah. But that's who we would normally trust for yeah. information. Yeah. Um, and so there's this this matter of that the each individual has to sort of take on for themselves both understanding it, finding out about it, making decisions about it, and as we describe in the book, creating legitimacy mm-hmm. uh, around the use. But that's also, again, back to our purpose, you know, illuminating this is is critical to helping people better understand it and establishing work that has uh, some degree of expertise is is really important. Yeah. But back, back to how we did it. Yeah, well, so you mentioned you had 40, you did 40 interviews, in, in-depth interviews. Talk to me about your roles and talk to me about sort of the process and the the interviews themselves? How did you structure things? Sure. Well, I mean, the interviews uh, I collected in the course of doing my dissertation. Mm-hmm. So that research was all passed through an IRB review at a university, which, um, you know, means it's taken into consideration the ethics and mm-hmm. the methods by which you're collecting that information. Mm-hmm. It also included um, attending a lot of uh, things related to organizing medical patients or medical advocacy in the state related to policy. And then I also did a set of unstructured interviews with people throughout the state of Colorado who were in various roles in relation to patients. So it may have been somebody who was working at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, you know, the CDPHE, Uh or, you know, people in different towns who, um, you know, I talked to some growers, I talked to people who were running dispensaries or running advocacy organizations. And a lot of that was just to get the pulse of what was happening, because everything was going so fast that there was no literature you could look to, you had to just talk to people who were affected by policies that are being implemented in different ways, and, and figure out, kind of what's going on in that part over there yeah. you know that was that hard so i'm curious a lot from 
from given, those people. Given, given that things were moving so quickly, um, did that did that make the you know kind of doing the research more problematic in terms of it was kind of a moving target, or that you know as as time went on, you know that the changing context and the changing environment would change the the nature of the interviews or or the the content of the interviews in some way. Well, I don't think anything happened that significantly changed um, the kind of responses I got from okay. patients. And the the book overall is really about about them. I think there's kind of two pieces to the book. On one hand, I feel like it, it, it fulfills a need to talk a little more comprehensively about what is this trend that is happening right yeah. now with the adoption of both medical laws and with uh, adult use laws. But of course, our book focuses on this medicalization process in which you move something that was previously uh, considered deviant Mm -hmm. or handled through your criminal justice system into a medical space. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that means that it's within medical institutions, culturally, we accept it as being within medicine, but that process is incomplete. And that means that the legitimacy that comes with calling it a medicine is also incomplete. And that means that people are always trying to construct that legitimacy. And um, it's complicated by the fact that you also have recreational use running alongside that, which is, you know, a different narrative to tell about about use and uh, complicates the yep. this story yep. around um, whether it's medical or not. Mm-hmm. And so this puts a lot of pressure on patients to figure out how to be legitimate, quote unquote, legitimate you know, medical cannabis patients. And a lot of that comes down to creating that legitimacy in interactions with people. And so a big piece of that, you know, there's there's a lot of things that are that are about theorizing about what that means. And those things are very enduring. I think they that part of the book will have, a, you know, a long life. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think it also captures a moment that happened in Colorado. And some of the things, um, you know, about about how stigma operates with with cannabis and these type of things, it's going to really uh, become evident how that was also a point in time. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, and likewise with the risks, because you know we we talk a, a bit about the risks that individuals face when they make the decision to enroll in a program, and you know those are multiple. You know, you've got direct legal risks. Are you compliant? Are you not compliant? Uh-huh. What happens when you you know deal with a compliance check at your house, and how are the police going to treat you? And we've mm-hmm. got some fairly horrifying stories in here from the patients, sure. uh, but also things around, you know, what's your professional role? Is that threatened by it? How about your parental role? You know, are you going to have that come under question? Are you fit uh, to, mm-hmm. to handle children and things like that? And, you know, it's, that's an ongoing process and, you know, it's probably going to be a while before we fully resolve it. But yeah, I think it is important that people understand just what all is at stake for the individuals who are actually using it. Yeah, I'm curious. Why don't we outline that a little bit? Because I think I think sometimes people don't uh, appreciate or, or really consider, from a, a use point of view, from a consumer point of view, you know, patient point of view, what what the kind of spheres of impact or the spheres of uh, consideration that come up. I mean, we mentioned the the legal side. It's like, okay, well, do I, am I exposing myself to kind of you know legal risks, you know, you know, compliance issues, you know, with the law or with regulation? There's social aspects, so you know, friends. How is this going to come up there? You mentioned, you know, family, both 
you know, parents, children, things like that, professional? Like, is this going to impact my professional credibility or reputation? Were those the major spheres or what, how did you see patients or what's, what spheres did you see patients kind of grappling with when it came to, you know, the, the use or the consideration of use of, of cannabis? Well, one thing is uh, that I think you're touching on here and, um, is, uh, you know, it isn't all said and done just because you pass a law at the state level <laughs> yeah. that allows people to access it. Yeah. You know, part of the stigma around cannabis is not just uh, sort of negative judgment, but it's also it's also the way it gets made into a joke or made light of, yep. for you know, made humorous, and um, that's that's dismissive in a sense of of some of the risk that people take on. And um, even though some of those you know that risk is is variable, and we're seeing changes, there are a lot of other aspects to it. Uh, in terms of how it affects your rights. It isn't just whether, you know, whether there's a state program, but also how does your, you know, how does that affect employment? Yeah. How does it affect your, your parent, like parenting rights? How does it affect your other medical rights? You know, in some states you can't own a gun, how it affects your driving rights if they um, set specific uh, DUI laws related to it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it can affect a lot of other rights and not all of that has been teased out yet. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard a lot of stories of um, like employment situations where particularly where there's, you know, people are, are employed in a different state than they live. And they have, you know, a medical card for one state, but then in the other state it's illegal and the employer has certain, you know, policies around, you know, use of things or drug tests and things like that. And like all the confusion and the drama and I mean, I've heard a lot of things about parental rights, you know, protective services coming in on situations and stuff. So, yeah, it's not I mean, just just because you kind of pass this legislation saying we're authorizing medical use. You know, it doesn't fix all those things. That's right. And there's also a concern for judgment. So even if there's not a direct legal yeah. consequence, yeah. right, it's like, how are people going to see me? How am I going to be judged? What's my boss going to think if I disclose this? Even if I'm not using it anywhere near work or working hours, it can mm-hmm. still, you know, it, it carries a stigma. Yeah. And so, well, you know, this is... And we have to remember that this is a double stigma because if you are using medical cannabis, it uh-huh. means you have a medical condition, which may uh, also mean you have to establish le- the legitimacy of your medical need. So to reduce um, reduce the one stigma, what you does have that to yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. It's like to kind of yeah. to address or solve one stigma, you've got to suffer another stigma. <laughs> that's right. And right, and you're expected are, to. Yeah. Um, have some rights around that of confidentiality about your health. So it gets a little sticky because you shouldn't have to disclose certain health conditions to your employer, for instance. Yeah. But, you know, this gets tied up in that. And then that can bring in, you know, we have a few stories in the book where people talked about not wanting to disclose their medical condition and that being tied to not wanting to disclose medical cannabis use because they were afraid that would impact their ability to be promoted. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, and what we know is that when individuals are faced with the the threat of being stigmatized, you know, the the more vulnerable you are to being stereotyped, the more sensitive you are. So, you know, as we have stories in the book from patients where there's like, well, you know, I feel like I can be an outspoken advocate on this and tell people because I am completely a normal middle class contributing member of society otherwise. Nobody can say anything bad about me <laughs> except this. So I feel safer talking about it. But if you have any other characteristic, yeah 
that might be stigmatizing, then you're just compounding matters by adding in more, whether it's your health condition or, you know, other factors in yeah. your life. So a lot of sensitivity well, around that. Some of that can be out of your control in the sense that some diseases we treat as more legitimate than others. So give me an example. Is there an example of... Well, so if you have HIV or cancer or something that's objectively diagnosable, people are going to have a lot less questions about your cannabis use for medicine. But if you just have chronic pain, as we all know, that's incredibly subjective. It's not only with medical cannabis. I mean, there's a lot going on with the opiate crisis Mm -hmm. about how much pain meds can people get before that's considered, you know, beyond what they should be given or, you know. So, um, but, but this creates a double legitimacy problem because if you are, if you don't have a legitimate condition, how are you using cannabis medically in a legitimate way? You must be using it recreationally under the cover of the guise of, uh, yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, and I mean, I guess there is, you know, certainly a, a segment of the population who, you know, have have been able, have done that to some extent, you know, how do you, in in your research, how have you found that has kind of impacted things? I mean, in terms of, you know, you've got an existing, you know, cannabis use culture, cannabis use population, it now goes medical and, you know, people using sort of the the medical cover for continued recreational use. Is that, is that something you found or is that something you either focused on or didn't focus on specifically? How did that come up? Well, in the course of recruitment for interviews, I certainly worded things such that no matter what your reason was for using it, mm-hmm. you know, I was interested in interviewing you yeah. and tried to get the maximum variation I could uh-huh. uh, among people who volunteered. At the same time, you know, the people who volunteered were probably more likely to feel uh, justified in what they were doing. And there's sort of no way around that those people were more likely to volunteer to be interviewed. Um, We did have a handful of people who said that their main reason for getting their medical card was not medical, but everybody in the study actually qualified under a legitimate medical condition. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of an interesting piece in that, you know, it wasn't that the people who said they were using it didn't have a reason that would qualify under the law. They did, you know, so, um, they were sort of seeing differences in legitimacy even within the patient population. So they, they all tended to say, it's not for me to judge, but at the same time, uh, you know, could acknowledge that somebody who was, you know, really seriously, chronically yeah. ill, yeah. that it didn't matter what the circumstance they were in. You know, they could be at a party, they could be wherever, and whatever they were doing with cannabis was obviously part of their their medical treatment. Mm-hmm. And, and others, you know, who felt like perhaps, well, I have alternatives or, yep. you know, I, I'm not necessarily in, in 24-7 need, um, then it seemed to be a little bit fuzzier to them. And, and that's one of the issues around this, yeah. you know, policy and law draws a bright line between these. But for individuals, it's it's a much more porous situation. Yeah. So yeah, we end up talking about that a little bit because we end up talking about, I mean, it's a lot about gatekeeping, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether it's welfare, getting uh, qualifying for welfare benefits or qualifying for disability or qualifying for medical cannabis, you have to ask sort of what do you get if you get through that gate and what do you what are the possible repercussions if you don't? And, you know, as we have more adult use states, the difference between people who get get a medical card and those who don't you know, the, it's less, it becomes less consequential to them. It isn't so stark 
like either you go to jail for this or you have the right to, to use it. And um, so I think that's an important thing is just thinking about like what, what are the incentives to um, get, get access yeah. or not through this particular avenue. And if you lower the stakes for people, you see less of that. But we didn't go into it trying to say, okay, why do people you know, how many cheaters are there and why do we have, you know, why do we have cheaters or whatever? We really went in to say, okay, how are people using this when they are medical cannabis patients, when they're designated as medical cannabis patients? And even though we touch on that, it wasn't the primary question that we asked. Yeah. So good segue uh, into this kind of uh, next question I have around, you know, how, what, what you've learned from this research in terms of seeing you know, how this kind of, how this industry is playing out and where it might go or, or how the future might unfold on some of this stuff. Because, you know, different states are doing different things. Some are, you know, launching medical programs first and some people are doing uh, combined programs at the same time. And, and in different states, even the medical side is quite different in terms of what, uh, you know, conditions are being authorized or, and what are not. I mean, how, in terms of the insights you've had on the uh, medical use side, how do you see this kind of impacting the development of, of the industry, of regulations, of policy? Like, how does this impact the industry? Well, I think that we can see pretty clearly, again, that there's there's a distinction to be made between folks who are using it therapeutically and folks who are using it for non-medical purposes. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, has been a debate as states that have medical programs have, you know, implemented adult use uh, policies. It's like, well, how different does that look? if at all. And there have been suggestions in some states. It's like, well, if you have an adult use access program, well, we can dispense with this others. Um, And, you know, from what we've seen and heard, you know, that's that's a mistake. There are different needs. Uh, People who are using it medically have frequently very particular products or, you know, varietals of cannabis that are helpful to them and they need consistent access to them uh, in ways that just aren't quite the same for uh, other folks. So, you know, I think that's going to be a continuing thing. And, uh, of course, development of individual options, you know, as we learn more and more about the constituent components of the plant, you know, as Michelle said earlier, it's not just one thing. <laughs> yeah. And and cannabis that's developed for non-medical purposes has frequently very different characteristics than things that are developed for, for healthy for medical people yeah. uh, with medical conditions, right? They just have yeah. different cannabinoid profiles, different terpene profiles, as well as the kind of products that are derived from them. Mm-hmm. Are there any, any suggestions on areas that the kind of medical programs, uh, areas they can be improved upon, either kind of generally or specifically based on the insights that you found in collecting the research around the, the use? Well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Michelle. Go ahead sweetie. Okay. <laughs> we are married, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was kind of a giveaway there. <laughs> yeah, they have been. Um, so, yeah, no, absolutely, they, they can be. I mean, you, you mentioned the condition lists, yeah. right? I mean, do you establish in the state law, these are the qualifying conditions for uh-huh. using medical cannabis, or is it something a little bit broader than that? And we allow doctors and patients to make that determination on their own. Yeah as we would frequently with other things. And the, uh, you know, the other is that, you know, there are obviously, you know, the things we talked about with risk. Are you going to have civil protections for using your medicine? You know, will you be fireable yeah. uh, if you test positive on a drug test? Yeah. Uh, 
um, even if it's, uh, you know, a, a medical program in your state. And we've seen that in, in some states, and there are big differences from state to state. Yeah. And in part, as Michelle mentioned, it's because of incomplete medicalization. At the point where it's fully incorporated, then you don't worry if you're a doctor about your patient testing positive for this medication some other doctor prescribed when you're considering a transplant. But right now, in many states... If you test positive for medical cannabis, you can be denied a transplant um, because you're classified as a drug abuser. And drug abusers are not compliant patients, so they're not good candidates for transplants is the thinking, however headed. So, yeah, we've got got some work to do still. Yeah, uh, good research. So we're gonna we're gonna hit time here in a second. If, if people want to find out more uh, about the research you've done, about the book, uh, the work you're doing, what's the best way to get a hold of that information? Um, we uh, have a website that's just uh, medicalizationofmarijuana.com, um, and through there you can order our book directly through the publisher Routledge. Uh Or um, you can go on Amazon and look up our book. It's there as well. And uh, we also um, have a book page on Facebook that's MedMJ Book. And uh, we post lots of things about the social science side at Cannabis and Society and behavior in cannabis. So. Awesome. I will make sure that uh, those links are in the show notes so people can click through and get those. Um, any any work coming up? Anything that you're uh, either doing or speaking about that uh, is you know of of note or interesting for you folks? Oh my yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're we're working on several things. Uh, most immediately, we're uh, working on a, a chapter for an edited volume that's going to be social science research about cannabis, and we're taking a look at the various state laws and programs medical cannabis programs and analyzing them in terms of how much they look at it in terms of it being a matter of medical necessity for folks or whether it looks like some sort of a hazard that we need to be careful around and try to you know create barriers to prevent people from using. But Michelle has been working on a, a much larger project as well. I'm not sure if she's quite ready to talk about that, but it's very <laughs> exciting. Yeah, I would just say we're also working on things that have to do with looking at uh, what's happening with the science around cannabis right now. Oh, good. Thank you. So, what scientists <laughs> yeah. are doing, what they're, what the kind of frontier of the research is looking like right now. Yeah, it's almost the research on the research, like figuring out yeah. what's, what's yeah. going on. Yeah, yeah kind right. of in the tradition of, uh, you know, science and technology studies, I yeah. guess. So. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm excited about that. I'll look forward to uh, uh, when, when you're ready. Uh, we'll do uh, we'll do another episode on that because I think that's a, a much needed and a fascinating kind of aspect of this industry is the research side. So thank you so much, uh, Michelle William. This has been great. I really appreciate the time. I appreciate the insights. Um, I've learned a lot and uh, I think our, our listeners have uh, have as well. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bruce. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.